a little anecdote. Um, about six years ago, our church was talking about, uh, do we build? Do we move? What do we do? We're in a, we're in a school building. Uh, and at the time, it was in sections of it were in serious disrepair. And I'm a build-averse individual, so I said, let's examine what stewardship is. And so one of our big strategic investigations was, do we come to the independent school and meet here? And we walked pretty far down that path before... Uh, you know, stewardship means different things to different families. And when you own your building outright, to sell it and enter the rental world uh, may not be the wisest thing. So we eventually said no, but I thought, man, I would love to preach the scriptures in this room. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. So one last thought before we get into the word, and we're going to be, by the way, in the book of Acts chapter 1, so if you want to turn there. But I, I feel like I want to—I I get to say this to uh, a church that's in its early stages of existence. There's a real beauty about settling into yourself, uh, you know, coming into your own, kind of like when you break a pair of shoes in, you know, that's when you know, and that's all great and healthy. And so church plants often are trying to aspire to get to that place where they're standing on their own two feet and they feel real and they have their own identity and their, their own sense of gravity that holds them together, and I totally affirm that. I just want to say that right around the corner from that, from settling in, is settling. And you have but to drive down the street and look at church after church after church that accidentally settled instead of settled in. And what I mean by that is moving from, like, uh, we know who we are to we know how to do church. We don't know how to do church. Like, we will live our whole lives and barely scratch the surface of what God intends to do with us. And so, like, I affirm and pray. My, I'm going to try to make my prayer for Redeemer that you settle in, but that you never settle. That you are always uneasy because, you know, God wants to do more with you, way more with you than you can possibly know. And uh, that's why I'm grateful you're in our community. So, um, with that, uh, Acts. So I was asked to speak about evangelism. Um, what Joel said is not entirely true about me. Um, I, I have been in, a, in about a 10 or 15 year search for, I don't like the word evangelism. Um, and I am not good at sharing the gospel with others. Uh, and the Holy Spirit has been working in me for over a decade now saying, it's not good that you feel that way. You're the pastor of the church. Uh, and so bit by bit over the past 10 or 15 years, things have been, uh, I feel, you know how the Lord only gives you what you can handle? If he showed you all of what was wrong with you in, the, in one moment, who could stand under that? Who could stand under that, right? So we get to see what we're able to take in. And I feel like the Lord has been showing me progressively like what I am able to handle in this realm. And you are kidding me as pieces are coming together. So I, I, I am emotionally a little bit of a mess on this subject right now. And uh, even when Joel and I sit and have lunch, like I got way more energy on this subject than intellect. Uh, and so uh, for that, I ask for your grace and simply say like, 
I'm in the land of just genuinely trying to understand God on this, and I hope, I hope we can share that together. So evangelism. Let me start with, uh, uh, I'm going to start with an image from physics. So if there are any physicists in here, um, give me for grace. So I'm like an armchair physicist, you know, I stayed in the Holiday Inn. My dad is literally a physicist, okay? The Air Force sent him to grad school for laser physics. So I've grown up near a physicist. Uh, and that's what you're going to get is somebody, somebody who was a political science major who grew up near a physicist, all right? But in the land of physics, there are different forces that are talked about, different cosmic forces, literally. So you know some of them. Some of them are kind of everyday notions like the force of gravity or the electromagnetic force. But then there are forces that are not everyday topics among people like you and me. And one of those is called the strong nuclear force. And it's this very mysterious thing. If you've ever heard the word quarks, things inside of an atom or a proton, the strong nuclear force is a force that's at work in the nucleus of an atom to hold the nucleus together. Because it really is, um, it is paradoxical that a nucleus holds itself together so well. Okay, you would expect protons so close. Remember, positive to positive and magnetism push apart. And yet, in a nucleus, it's just protons and neutrons holding themselves tightly together. They're very difficult to push apart. And that's the strong nuclear force. And at that subatomic level, that force is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the strongest force that you can find. Okay? It is, it's so strong, right? The, the force of gravity exists all the way throughout. But at that level, the force of gravity is so minute, it's not even worth measuring. Physicists don't even calculate for the force of gravity because the strong nuclear force is so much stronger. The problem with it is, or not the, well, the reality, is that the strong nuclear force drops off so dramatically that you get about two and a half diameters of a proton away and it's, it's not that strong anymore. So it's super strong, but it's hyper-local, right around itself. Nonetheless, it's the strong nuclear force. The force of gravity, on the other hand, compared to the strong nuclear force is inconsequential in its strength, in its measurable strength. But this is what's interesting about the force of gravity is it pulls on everything in the universe simultaneously, infinitely. Think about that. Your body, like I'll try to be generous. I'm gonna, I don't want to make anyone feel overweight. What number do I pick? You're 120 pounds, is yanking on every star. So it's small, but it's vast. You're barely touching everything. And, and I want to use these, these ideas. I want to use these ideas as we think about evangelism because when we go to the book of Acts, what we find is story after story after story of the apostles exhibiting witness of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's unmatchable. It's, you know, there's a part where it says people would drag the crippled people into the shadow of Peter and they would be healed. I mean, if evangelism is banking on that, we're in trouble. Because we just don't, I don't see that, right? I don't think you see that. 
So there's, on the one hand, as we're going to approach evangelism, I want us to see the, the strong apostolic force for what it is, okay? I don't want to diminish it. I don't want to uh, try to qualify it. But what I want to do is, in our study of the Word, is to observe that there is, behind this, in the background, this weak church force that's at work. And on the whole, on the whole, this this weak force, I think, does more converting power in the world than the strong apostolic force. And this is the force that you and I share. So I, I want us to be able to look at Acts and not feel invalidated because we're not apostolic, but rather look at Acts and be called as a, a, a part of ultimately the greater force in the kingdom. So that's the goal today. And uh, we'll start in a classic place, Acts 1.8. And it's kind of going to be a high flight sail through Acts. But uh, we're in Acts 1.8. And this is, you might say, the theme or the thesis of the book of Acts. Um, this is a promise of our Lord to the disciples before he leaves. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's given right up front. Uh, this, it kind of tips the hand that there's this strong force coming and that's exactly what we see happen. So Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost where the Holy Spirit of God falls upon the, the, the disciples of the Lord. They preach and exhibit the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And on that day it says 3,000 were added to the number. So it's this great, remarkable, powerful in some ways, a uh, singular event in the Word of God. And I'm going to skip that part. I'm going to confess it, say it's there. It's not that I'm bored by it, I'm fascinated by it. We could spend weeks in it. But I'm, 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 uh, I'm interested in what's going on behind the background. And this is a little bit of background. Look at the end of chapter 2. Verses 42 through 46, this is going to be sort of the first uh, uh, preeminent definition of the church, okay? This is what it says. It says, and speaking of this now 3,000 plus community, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what do we see there? We see... Uh, we see apostolic power for sure. We see the strong force for sure, right? There were the signs and the wonders of the apostles. That's what it says in verse 43. But we see other things are present also. We see uh, devotion to the fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Very regular things. So there's... This is the first moment you see it where the apostles are doing something singularly impressive, 
but alongside of, in the background, with, I don't know how to say it, I don't know how to stick all of this in a centrifuge and figure out what, per, what percentage of what does what, I don't know how to do that. I just want to say the pow, strong force of the apostles is not by itself, rather it's an ingredient in a holistic picture where there's the devotion of the fellowship, that's us, right? That's our, not, not the attendance of church on Sunday, the devotion to the fellowship, which is over and above attendance. The devotion to the fellowship, breaking of bread, sharing of things, life together, prayer. Okay? And that, that is the part that I'm interested in. Is uh, I think my, my belief is the evangelical church in America has woefully, woefully underestimated the converting and saving power of devotion to the fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. That, that the weak force is living in that. That it makes us unique and different. And you see it happening here. You see the strong force and the weak force right beside each other. It's like the apostles are catching men and the church is cleaning them. That's the first example. So, so I'll show you another one. Here's the fourth chapter if you go there. And a lot of really great things have happened. Paul Silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk, and a guy springs up, and it becomes another Holy Ghost preaching moment where people are at it, and it creates, uh, you know, controversy. All those things happen. I don't want to deny them. I'm interested and fascinated by them, uh, but I'm, uh, today I'm focused on something else. After all of that, we get to the fourth chapter. <clears throat> Peter's been kind of sternly warned, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And he says, well, I don't know what to do with what you just said. Do I obey you or do I obey God? And he goes back and he prays and the ground shakes. That's what it says in, in verse 31. They prayed. The place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. So you have this, this work of the Spirit in the church, but here's what I want us to, to read. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I find this account uh, interesting because <clears throat> with no doubt that there's strong apostolic force going on, right? There's no doubt that the apostles are doing amazing things. But what Luke takes note of is changed life. That's what he notes here. There's this, this guy, Barnabas, who in part, I think Luke is introducing him to the narrative because he's going to play a role later. But there's this Cyprian Levite, this, you know, this priestly tribe Jew from Cyprus, who in all of this gets sold out for Jesus Christ, sells his property, and, and lays it at the feet of the apostles. And that's what's noteworthy. 
That's what seems to be drawn out. Once again, I just want to say, changed life inside the church is, has a power of its own. It draws people in. They know what the world is like. And then they look inside the church and they go, why does it look so different in there than it does out here? The disparity between life in the church and life outside the church is, ought to be and should be and is intended by the Holy Spirit to be radically evangelistic. Radically evangelistic. Not mildly evangelistic. Radically evangelistic. I'll give us another example. Look at chapter 6. Now, I know we're moving. We're going to get to like 11 in, in a day, so just to kind of pace your speed. Don't get like a paper cut. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 6. So, by the way, I, I skipped over some really powerful Peter moments, okay? Uh, but in chapter 6, we have this, this additional example which this one has been hiding for like 40 years uh, for me because I've always read it as a, a subject about deacons. It's not, uh, it's, not in, it's not primarily about that. I think we're going to get to the heart of it today. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now that's interesting. The problem that starts in chapter 6 is that the, what happens essentially is the problems in the world show up inside the church. Right? It's, there's, there's ethnic strife in the church. The Jews are treating the, the Greeks, I mean the Hebrew Jews, let's be clear, the Hebrew Jews, the pure Jews, are treating the Greek Jews as second-class citizens. That's the problem. So there's this, anytime the church grows, the way it grows healthily, not simply through member transfer, but anytime the church grows by advancing into darkness, it's going to bring the problems of the world in. That's, we should expect that. That's, that's a, I don't want to say you're hoping for problems, but problems like that are often a sign that, you're, that real conversion is taking place. And so people are coming into the church, and now there's this problem. We here look like they do out there. 
What I find is interesting is the response of the apostles. They say, this is not our problem, this is your problem. It would be wrong for us, and this is a whole sermon all by itself, but it would be wrong for us to cease doing the number one thing that God has commissioned, which is to seek the lost. Okay, I feel like the church has settled on the second things rather than the first thing. But here we see the apostles saying it would be heretical. It would be to abandon the Lord to focus on the internal problems of the church at the cost of the mission of the church. And this problem does not need some apostolic magic trick. It doesn't need Peter to kind of whip up something awesome. It, what it needs is the congregation, the basic wisdom of the spirit in the congregation to do the work. That's all it needs. It needs the subtle and sublime weak force to minister to it. It needs the fruits of the spirit. And the apostles put it on the church. By the way, they don't put it on seven men. They put it on the church. They say, choose from among yourselves. They turn to the whole congregation and say, choose from among yourselves some people who can direct and guide us. And interestingly enough, they choose all Greek leaders. They kind of, they, they, they say the problem is the, the Greek Jews are not well represented and so they, they diversify their leadership in some pretty profound ways. And, and, but it's a, it's, a, it's a kingdom problem in the church and the apostles say to the church, you're more than able to deal with this. More than able to deal with this. Did you note what happened? They address it, and what happens to the church? It explodes. It multiplies. Multiplies is the word, not adds. So far, you know, this many people were added to the number, this many people were. Would you prefer, if you're trying to, if it's a race to be a millionaire, do you want to use the multiplication sign or the addition sign? Right? What I'm saying is, is there's a significant event in the church where the apostles bow out, and the result is the church explodes. This is an important pivot point in the book of Acts, by the way. This is right here, right here, as Luke is writing in the book of Acts, he's going to take the camera lens off the 12 and start moving it, nudging it. Let's look at Stephen. Okay, let's look at Philip. Okay, let's look at Saul. Okay, let's look at Timothy. Okay, let's look at nameless people. So right now, the, the camera in Acts is pivoting to people who are not the apostles. You should note, it says here that this should be like an incredulous statement. In verse 7, even priests became obedient. Even priests. <clears throat> I feel like Luke is saying, like, can you believe that? I wonder, I wonder if what is really amazing, this is, this is me musing, not preaching, okay? I'm left wondering if the Hebrew priests who are faithful to the Torah, uh, what really gets to them is not the message about Jesus, but the fruit of the Spirit in the congregation that says, that's legit. That is legit. And this is valuable. What does it mean that we're witnesses? It means that we give confidence to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Not that you can tell it, but that your life conveys confidence to someone, that they can begin to put weight on it. They see you doing it, and then they see us doing it, 
And then they see what happens, and they think, I'll put weight on that. I will put trust. We have a church that has no problem with belief, but massive issues with trust. Leaning on the gospel. And that's what seems to be happening here. Okay. I want to say it this way. The community of believers ought to triumph over outside problems. I'm not saying that we go outside the walls of the church and fix all the problems of the world. I don't think that's the call of the church primarily. I am saying inside the walls of the church, there should be signs of triumph and victory. There should be. It's not like there in here. It really ought to be that way. And, and it, the, notice the apostles don't say this is not a problem. They say it's a problem. It's, not, it's, it's a problem you can handle. You handle it. Another thing I want to note here is that what was needed to fix this problem was not some really special gift of the Holy Spirit. I want us to note that. What's missing here is not a healing, a sign. What's missing here is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The kinds of things that every follower of Jesus Christ should have in increasing measure as they grow in the Lord. And I, we should also note, if we just kind of step back, and this is probably something that can be tested by those of you who are more comfortable with the word. But when you look at the instructions of Peter and of John and of Paul as they write their letters to the churches, we do not find them. We simply do not find them saying, you know what you really need? You need more gifts. That would fix it. You know what you really, really need is either this special gift that you need to pray for. What we find over and over and over again is them counseling us to the fruits of the Spirit. Let your good deeds shine among men so that why they would disparage you, they would see your work and glorify the Lord on the day of his coming. First Peter. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. First John. Paul. Let me show you a more excellent way. Though we speak with the tongue of men and angels, if I have not love, I am Nothing. Again and again, they, they push the church to the weak force, not the strong force. All right. Something happens in chapter 8. And by the way, like, I am not rejecting the gifts. I'm not rejecting any of those things. I'm simply edifying and blowing up what's happening in the background. Okay? Nobody needs to get worried here. Like, I'm all up in it but I just want us to see what's really regularly happening, okay? We get to chapter 8, and something important happens. Stephen, who's not an apostle, but he is apostolic, Stephen, who's full of the spirit and wisdom, that's what the scriptures say in chapter 6, he preaches aggressively, and it drives people crazy, and he ends up getting stoned. And it seems to be that as soon as they kill one of these prominent Christians, that it's sort of like a green light to start killing a bunch of them. Like, hey, we, we can actually take care of these guys. So a great persecution breaks out. That's what's starting in, in chapter 8. I'll just read the first several verses to Cages. Verse 4 is really what I find interesting. But it says, 
So speaking of the death of, of Stephen, it says, And Saul approved of his execution, that's verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and great, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I learned this in the NAV, so I'm, I'm affectionately connected to it. It said this way, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Did you hear that? The picture is that the members of the church have been shepherded in a way where the first things are first and the second things are second, so that when they are scattered apart from one another, they actually begin to behave like the ministry of the apostles. Like, it doesn't matter what team they were on. <laughs> you know, when they were scattered, they preached the word wherever they went. So what we end up finding right here in chapter 8, chapter 8 through chapter 11 is kind of an epic in the book of Acts. And what we see is the only Christians who really remain in Jerusalem, for the most part, are the apostles. And that the explosion of the church, we don't know how it's going to explode. We don't know who necessarily plants it. But the only thing we do know for sure is who did not plant it. And the apostles did not plant it. And so we end up finding this. So I'll give you some examples. Look at chapter 9. <clears throat> so, again, I'm interested in the background, okay? But just, I'm going to read this. This is about the conversion of Saul, the Saul to Paul, the Damascus Road, all of that. But I want to take note of one detail. It says, but Saul, this is chapter 9, verse 1, still breathing threats of, and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let's stop there. What is in Damascus? A church. Why would Saul need to go there? So I would even say this. It's not simply that there's a church in Damascus. There's a church that's a problem in Damascus. There's a movement in Damascus. There's, there is an, it, there's enough of a gospel problem in the city of Damascus that Saul has need to leave the city of Jerusalem where the apostles are ministering, by the way. Remember, they're still in Jerusalem. He has to leave Jerusalem to go to Damascus to stamp out that problem before it gets out of control. That's, and we know that there's a church in Damascus because Saul gets blinded, and you know what the Lord does? Look at verse 10. He finds a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. There are believers in Damascus. And he says, Ananias, I need you to go lay hands on, on Saul. I've told him there's a man named Ananias. He's coming to lay hands on you so you can restore sight. Ananias says, you got it all wrong, Lord. That's a, he's a bad dude, Right? The Lord says, you hush up. Don't tell me how to do my business. Get over there. Ananias goes, lays hands on Saul, prays that he might, sight might be restored. His sight is restored. And look at verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, then rose and was baptized. I have a picture like, uh, 
Like, not only is there a church in Damascus, like, they have everything together. They, they have the parameters of church. They have a baptistry. <laughs> is almost the feeling, you know, like, they probably sang six verses of just as I am when he went up. I mean, they're, it's like a, they've settled in. They have settled in in Damascus. Who planted that church? Anyone know? None of us know. Nobody knows. It wasn't, not the apostles. We do know who it wasn't. It was Christians with the Holy Spirit who were devoted to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer because the weak force on the whole has tremendous power. Tremendous power. I'll show you another example. Uh, chapter 9, verse 32. So in this part, Peter goes on an encouragement tour, kind of like Billy Graham. So he leaves Jerusalem, and in verse 32 it says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, which, by the way, that tells you something really, I mean, the implications about that are interesting. Why does Peter need to leave Jerusalem to go here and there among them all? <laughs> There's churches all over the place is the picture you get, but that's an implication, but here's something that's, that's clearly true. He came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. So what's in Lydda? A church. Who planted the church in Lydda? We have no idea. We do have some idea. Not the apostles. Okay? He does this powerful apostolic thing in Lydda. Uh, he does this miracle, right? I'm not trying to deny the strong apostolic force. I'm just trying to see the, the weak force happening all around it. I want us to note the weak force preceded the strong force to Lydda. Then we find out in verse 36 through 38 that the saints who lived in Joppa. So the church in Joppa heard that Peter was in Lydda, and they said, hey, we got problems too. Come on over here. So we have a church in Damascus. We have a church in Joppa. We're not even talking about all the work that Philip did in Samaria and all the way up the coast. But there are here and there all around Jerusalem are churches that have been planted and started by people whose names we, have, we will never know until we see the Lord in glory, right? One day I want to meet these people, and I want to feel like I'm like them. I don't want to feel like I'm different from them. But they are going out armed not with the strong apostolic force. We don't see that. They're going out armed with a devotion to the fellowship, to, to, well, to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And that by itself seems on the whole to be sufficient to advance the kingdom of God of power. One more distinct passage. Look at chapter 11. <clears throat> chapter 11 is kind of closing this epic out. So uh, if you were going to follow the camera lens of, of Luke, he's staring at the apostles up to chapter eight, uh, 6. Okay, then... Then he says, I'm pivoting to these apostolic characters like Philip and Stephen. And, and by the time you get to 11, he's going to close that out and he's going to start to get interested in the ministry of Paul. So this is a concluding phrase, but I want to pick up in 19. And you should hear the way it sort of bookends this section. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them 
men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed to turn to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, they brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Who planted Antioch? We don't know. We only know who did not plant Antioch. And Antioch is not insignificant. Antioch becomes a center of gravity for the church. It's the church at Antioch that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul is going to be sent on his missionary journeys. He's going to report back to the church in Antioch. Antioch is going to become a pseudo-capital of the Christian movement for a while. Who planted it? We don't know. Did you see all the amazing signs and wonders that were done in order to plant the church in Antioch? Because I didn't. What I saw was people who came. This is what you see in the text. People who come to the town of Antioch and begin to proclaim, bear witness to the power of Jesus Christ in their life and what he's done, and then have an eye for people who are not yet in the church. What about that description doesn't fit us? How do you and I escape that call to preach the word wherever we go, to bear witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives, for our lives to give someone else confidence that what we say is true? I mean, the movement of the church of God like, which for a period of time was coming out of Antioch, was built by people just like that. You know that they're not super talented people because Barnabas shows up and goes, dear Lord, this is awesome. What they need is talent. And he goes and gets Saul. So we really know the one thing they don't have is talent. Because he goes up, I need somebody who actually knows the word. You know, like my, my grandfather, faith entered into my family's sort of story with my grandfather who had a third grade education. He was pulled out of the third grade to work in the rice fields of southern Louisiana. He was a dirty Cajun, okay? That's what he was. The Lord caught him. When he, he pretty much learned to read with the Bible, was called to be a minister. Like, he was a powerful witness to the poor of southern Louisiana, and he, but he didn't really know. I would not say he was talented. He was faithful. I find that the reason in the evangelical church so many people do not bear witness is because they feel ill-equipped. They feel like, I'm not, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. I don't know enough. You know, this is the call. The call of the Lord is to be obedient to him through the Spirit. In obedience in the Spirit, it's what makes you usable. Not study after study after study. In fact, that mindset of there's something else I need to know, that goes on endlessly 
endlessly. It will make you perpetually unuseful because you really actually have a spirit problem. Here we see regular people faithful to the spirit and the Lord adds to their faithfulness what they need. Do we believe that? Now, we're at our time. I want to tell you about Paul because I feel like some of you are thinking, yeah, well, Paul was like an apostle. Like the church exploded with Paul. I mean, because he plants a church in Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, I don't know, Corinth, Ephesus. He writes and strengthens the church in Rome. Like everywhere you go, you see Paul, you see Paul. You know, if you divide the time of his ministry and his missionary journeys, if you divide all the places he goes by the time he has, he spends on average six months at each church. Each church he plants, he's there for about six months. Now, some churches like Corinth, he's there for a year and a half. Ephesus, he's there for a while. So some churches like Thessalonica, you know how long he's in Thessalonica? We debate whether he's there three or four weeks or two months. He plants a church in weeks. So just so you can kind of screen out the strong apostolic force of Paul, what we really can be sure of is the churches that Paul planted almost never saw Paul. Almost never. They grew in faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul had this way about him where if he came to a place and planted a church and he saw real talent, he took it. So he goes to Lystra, and in the city, church of Lystra, or it's Derby, we're not quite sure, he sees this young man named Timothy. And he says to this church that he just planted in months, he says, I'm going to borrow Timothy for like a long time. Can you imagine that? So you guys are not here that long, right? You've not been real that long. Can you imagine someone with, who's being truly obedient in an apostolic way to the mission of God who comes in this church and scrapes off the best talent in this church because the kingdom and the mission of God is so important. Now, it says two things. For one, it tells us how important the mission of God is. And for two, it tells us how sufficient this fellowship is in the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to hear. You are sufficient in the power of the Holy Spirit if you would simply yield to it. Because what God really needs is just a group of people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. That's all he needs. And he adds everything that's needed on top of that. To that, he'll see whatever weakness you have and he'll meet it because he's simply looking for faithful people. And in that, it allows us to keep the mission of God clear which is there is an entire world of people who are not being advocated for in the kingdom. They're living in darkness and they're perishing. That's a fact. It's a fact. The apostles behave that way. God writes this way. He commissions us this way. It's just a fact. And all that's needed is faithfulness. I'm going to close this in prayer. My, my hope, you're thinking, what's the practical goal here? My practical goal is to nudge you out of the lane of I'm not well equipped enough to this is actually the great command of our holy God who sent his son for me, not because I'm worth saving, but because he loves people of whom most are not in the kingdom. 
is pushing us that way. And it's not that you are only invalidated to the degree that you don't care and you're not following the Spirit of God in your life. And that this church, which is so scattered in this room, but I want to bundle it up, right? I just want to bundle it up. This church, in its devotion to one another and to the apostles' teachings and to the breaking of bread and prayer, is sufficient to do great things.